Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Alex Kalanokas, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome to the second episode in our mini-series running over the 2022 Formula One Summer Break, another series of debates over the greatest drivers at various Grand Prix squads. And this time, it's Brabham. But before we dive into the top 10 ranking on this episode, I'm coming first to the person who has put it together, Autosport's Chief Editor, Kevin Turner. Now, Kev, you were assessing in our previous episode, Jake Boxall Legs Top 10 Arrows Drivers. How did you find that? Are you happy to be back in your typical role as Autosport's principal list writer? Uh, yeah, it was quite nice being on the other side of the debate, if you like, to try and not attack, but uh, analyse someone else's list. But I'm, I'll be honest, I probably feel more comfortable having done the research to put the list together because you're just you're just a bit that much more into it if you're actually there and know you've got to make the list and and then defend it so uh so i'm kind of i'm kind of pleased uh, but then i suppose it depends how the next the next 45 minutes or an hour or whatever it is goes and we'll see if my my guest has torn my list to shreds uh, by the end indeed and on that note we better introduce our second guest which is a welcome back to the autosport podcast for our former editor-in-chief uh, experienced motorsport journalist damien smith how are you damo very well thanks alex nice to be here nice to see you both what is the difference? And I suspect maybe Kev, you'd be able to give us an answer on this. What is the uh, the difference between a chief editor and an editor in chief? I mean, there is ostensibly none, 
the re- <laughs> when we were coming up with my job title, those were the two options. And uh, having spoken to, to to Damien before about some of the trials and tribulations he'd had with that role, I was like, well, I'll, I'll have the other one then. So it literally is as arbitrary as that. Poison chalice, editor-in-chief, that's what I would say. So, yeah, chief editor's better. I was going to say <laughs> that, that quite that harsh, but yeah, so uh, that, that, that explains it. It's been all right so far, Touchwood. I mean, unless you count... Yeah, pandemic and the mag closure and be opening again, and yeah, actually, no, that's perhaps, perhaps pretty small things. Great. Yeah, yeah. Pretty minor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think any of those were your fault. <laughs> I just hope. I you should you always blame the, blame the guy in charge. It's always his fault. <laughs> right. Well, quickly before we get into Kev's Brabham list, here's a reminder for the listeners of how we arrange these episodes. For each entry, I'll introduce the driver in question and summarise their Brabham career. Then, Kev, you're going to explain why that driver is in that slot. Although, as for a couple, we'll talk about the drivers together in little groupings to explain their positions as it comes up nice and naturally. Uh, and then for each discussion, Damo, you're going to be assessing Kev's reasoning and logic, if you need there is any, although we should hope so. And as we go through, we'll, uh, we'll also cover off the drivers who didn't quite make the cut. So... Number 10 in the top 10 Brabham drivers is Carlos Pache. Drove for Brabham between 1974 and 1977. Started 39 races, took one win and one pole. So Kev, why is he at number 10? Well, he's, he's, we talked about unfulfilled potential and talent in the, in the previous list. And I think this is, you know, this is the equivalent on the Brabham list. Um, you know, uh, Pache was an up-and-coming talent, if you like. Joined alongside, effectively, as a number two to Carlos Reutem in 1974. Uh, and he took a pole and wins, uh, as you say, and won his home home race in 1975 in the in the very cool BT44B. I think that's a that's that's cool. And I've got one Gordon Murray's great uh, F1 designs. Uh, and actually, he felt they could have gone on challenge for the championship had they continued developing it. Um, and the reason he's on this list really is, is his kind of attitude within the team. So when Brabham switched from the Cosworth DFV engine to Alfa Romeo's. Um, <laughs> Reutemann kind of lost interest and didn't really like it. The 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 first car in '76 was was not great. And had quite a few reliability problems, but Parche kept the attitude, kept pushing on, and really you know started to look like he could be a you know consistent front runner. Finished second in the Argentinian Grand Prix in the 45 uh, 45B early in '77, but was then unfortunately killed in a light aircraft crash that March. Now, given what John Watson went on to do. Yeah, he should have won races in that correlation in the year, and you think you know Parche would have probably been in a similar similar place, maybe a little bit better. Um, but for me, the sort of clincher that gets him onto the list is is Ecclestone's um, quote, uh, where he said, "If Parche had lived, I wouldn't have needed Nicky Lauda." And obviously, Nicky Lauda is one of the great names of the sport. So for Eccleston to say that, I think, is quite quite a big deal. Well, Damo, coming to you, do you, do you agree with that? And maybe are there any suggestions who could have come in at number ten instead of instead of Parche? Well. I think Parche is the right one for number 10. Um, I'll come on to later in the list about who I think should be in the list, who isn't. Um, but number 10 for Parche, I, I agreed with. Um, it's also interesting that he, as a character, um, was really close to Bernie. So he's one of the few drivers that Bernie was close to in the way that Stuart Lewis Evans was in the 50s, obviously, and then Jock and Rint, both killed in racing cars or via after accidents. Um and, and Parche was another one killed in a light aircraft accident. I don't think Bernie ever got as close to drivers as he did after Parche. Um, even PK, I would say, he wasn't as close to. So um, they had a real affinity. They used to play a lot of cards together, apparently. He was, um, and, um, yeah, I think he would have been a, a multiple race winner had he had he lived. 
Well, moving on to number nine, Kev's got John Watson, drove for Brabham in two stints, 1973 to 1974 and 1977 to 1978. Started 15 races, didn't take any wins, but did get one pole position. So Kev, why is Watson at number nine? Um, I guess t- two main reasons, really. One is that he you know, he kind of picked up and led the team after Parche's death in, in 77. As I say, really should have won um, the French Grand Prix. Been fortunate enough to... St- and a couple of others he could have won but the French Grand Prix is the one that really stands out I spoke to him about that you know he he was holding off Mario Andretti's Lotus and uh, he was pretty confident that he had him covered Uh, and then there was a sort of fuel starvation issue on the very last lap which was enough for Mario to get alongside and and beat him and he had a very similar uh, I don't think they ever really got to the bottom of that that problem um, and had the same same thing happening when he was uh, battling for the lead at the British Grand Prix as well. So he should have probably won a couple of races there. Uh, and then actually, um, he he compared pretty well to Lauda. I know that Lauda famously said that, oh, he always felt like he had John Watson covered. It was only when Prost arrived at McLaren that he was worried. But actually, even at McLaren, uh, you know, Watty outscored him for two seasons. And he compared pretty well uh, alongside Lauda at, at at Brabham so I think you know with that sort of company and what he'd done in 77 was enough to to get him on the list even though he didn't actually have a win that I think he deserved yeah what, what he's incredibly honest about his career and um with Lauda the thing that he always says is um he wasn't as good at playing the team game and you know Lauda understood how to get a team around him and working for him and I, I think you know what he never never really had that ability um but in terms of actual pace and um racecraft oh fantastic wheel to wheel driver yeah. yeah and obviously yeah fantastic famous for his overtaking um for for his you know, later exploits in mclarens but um yeah he was de- de- desperately unlucky in 77 not to not to get a win and i always think of silverstone as well as as that uh, french grand prix because of leading james hunt to two brits uh at the front of a, a british grand prix at a time when that was actually not something that was, that was happening anymore. Um, so it's quite a big deal, I think. So, yeah, um, absolutely deserving of a good place on the list. And I think you've probably got him in the right place. Coming on to number eight, and we're actually going to do uh, eight and seven together because they tie together quite nicely. Uh, but at number eight, Kev has got Jochen Rintz, F1's posthumous world champion, very tragically, in 1970. He drove for Brabham for a single season in 1968. Started 12 races, didn't take any wins, but did get two pole positions. And then at number six, another driver who spent just a year at Brabham is Jackie Ix, 1969. He raced there, uh, started 11 races, winning twice and taking two pole positions. So, Kev, why Rint at number eight, why Ix at number seven and why are we talking about the two together? Well, I really, really wanted to put Rint ahead because I think he was more of a Brabham driver than Ix was. I think he was taking, you know, really, he kind of really got on well with Jack Brabham uh, and Jack wanted him back. So, basically... Uh, Rint was there in 68, Ix was there in 69. Uh, the thing that separates them really is that Rint had to put up with the 4 cam 860 Repco engine, which could not hold together. So he had a couple of poles but and was co- invariably quick, but he could hardly finish any races. Whereas Brabham finally gave up on that Adekosseth DFE the following year and Ix won two races. So uh, I don't think Ix was kind of, you know, he then went off to Ferrari. I don't think he was kind of in the bosom of the team in the way that Rint had been. Uh, and Jack Brabham tried to get him get him back for 1917. Got quite close, actually. In the end, I think Colin Chapman basically just threw money at him um, because Rint liked the way that Jack Brabham went about his business. He felt safer there. And it was like kind of that, you know, do, 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 you, want to, do you want to survive or do you want to be world champion? Which yeah, sounds a bit the, harsh, doesn't it? That's the famous Bernie quote, isn't it? You know, if you want to become world champion, 
go to Lotus if you want to survive, stay at Brabham. It's a very Bernie kind of thing to say, but um, yeah, he kind of maybe had a point. Yeah, sadly, sadly he did on this occasion, didn't he? But yeah, so I, I thought these two had to be together, together. I really wanted to put Rint ahead, but I think on the basis that he didn't he didn't win a world championship race there and he didn't go back for 1970. Ix won two races and one of those was a mega race as well, beating Jackie Stewart at the Nürburgring, which is pretty, pretty cool. That's why he edged ahead, really. May I be awkward at this point? Because um, Of course, you're the guest. You can do what you like. Well, so Kev, when you originally came up with this list, you sent me, uh, you sent it to me on an email, just as a, uh, what do you think? And uh, Rint wasn't on your original list. And I said, what about Jochen Rint? And now I'm going to say to you, I don't think Jochen Rint should be on this list. <laughs> so, yeah. So basically, I Cute. sort of, I, I did it on purpose. No, I thought about it after I sent back the email saying to you, what about Jochen Rint? And I thought, actually, in terms of, we're looking at achievements and impact in a, in a Brabham, Rint was just very unlucky, typical thing of being in the right team at the wrong time, which we've seen many times over the years and we still see it today. Um, he was, as you said, Kev, he was, you know, the, the Repco engine they had that year compared to the engine that um, dominated through 66 and 67, taking two, two world titles. It all went wrong for them in 68 and what should have been his breakthrough, you know, a big, big season for him um, turned into a very disappointing one. So in terms of results, even though he got on very well with Jack and Jack wanted him back, I would argue he's probably outside the top 10 and I would put in Ricardo Petrezzi um, simply because uh, longevity. Uh, he was there also at a very important time in Brabham's 80s history um, and he did win races for them, albeit luckily. <laughs> I mean, that, that's that's all fair and, and Petrezzi, I guess, is the obvious omission from from the list the reason he's not there is i i had in my mind because i done a i did a piece earlier in the year on um best number twos in f1 history which obviously Petrezzi would i mean what's the number two depends on your teammates are etc etc but i just think he didn't pull his weight enough alongside pk he wasn't driving the team whereas rint was the number one like jack brabham who was at that point a three-time world champion was happy to step back and really admit that this guy was better than him or faster than him whereas I don't think there was any question uh, you know during the Bernie Gordon Murray era that Ricardo was going to be leading the team and in fact I think there was a bit of tension there he left the first time round didn't he and then, and then came back so yeah. I didn't you I mean perhaps you could say it's circumstances in that Petrezzi was never going to have a fair crack at it given what what Murray and PK were building together anyway but in the end I just felt like he didn't really do enough while he was there uh, the longevity almost works against him in that regard. It just never really came together for him. But 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 yeah, I mean, yeah, I can see why it could great that he's not in the ten. Yeah, I, I, I'm slightly biased. I think given my age, I'm, I'm in my late forties, and so I grew up in the eighties. And when I think of Brabham, I think of Parmalat Brabham's first. I think of PK, and then I kind of think of Petrezzi, just because that was Brabham for such a a, a decent chunk of that of that. Uh, formative years of, of my youth, I suppose. Um, I take your point that, that Rint was a leader and, and Petrezzi absolutely wasn't. And I also think that Petrezzi was much better in a Williams than he ever was in a Brabham. That's what I was going to say. He, yeah. Petrezzi comes to my mind. I mean, actually, he was number one in our Arrows list. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, but he actually, if I'm thinking about it, he immediately cut his boots in and Petrezzi in a Williams is kind of what I think of. Yeah, and his his career kind of turned around when he when he got into Williams. So, um, but I mean, yeah, I I would I would still maybe argue with you on that one. But you're the boss. You're the chief. 
Indeed. No, that's not how these work. Well, I, what I would say is that, uh, as Kev pointed out, I think Patrese is not doing too badly on terms of the uh, the list having topped the Arrows list. So maybe that's a nice, uh, nice fair way of... Uh, of, yeah. of, of He's a fine it. number 11, anyway. <laughs> yes, actually, I've got a feeling he was number 11 in the Williams list now. Ah, oh, maybe he's not doing so badly. Well, then. We have to might check, check Series 1. He was, he was on the bubble for uh, Williams. I can't remember whether he made it in or not. I have to go and check that. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's move on to number six on the Brabham Top 10 Drivers. Uh, we've spoken about him a little bit earlier. It's Nicky Lauda. Uh, drove for Brabham between 1978 and 1979. Uh, started 29 races, one twice, one pole position. Kev, why is Lauda at number six? Well, I mean, so this is a good point. Uh, to, to just remind everyone that this isn't a list of the greatest drivers who have sat in whatever team we're talking about, because obviously, you know, Nicky Lauda is one of the all-time great drivers, three-time world champion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, but it's it's based on what they did at the team, um, and for me, it was quite a solid sixth place, really, because I think the top five kind of picked themselves, not necessarily in the order that you know you go for. But he didn't quite get the job done, but he did sort of lead the team. But he didn't completely thrash Watson, who's sort of quite you know. Just, just inside the 10. He's got a couple of wins. Uh, and let's remember, he did walk out on the team in the mid-season as well. I was like, oh, I'm just bored going around in circles. And also, he had a very young, quick teammate at that point that probably you know, might not have helped the motivation. I was going to say, do you, do you think that PK was the, the, the clinching factor why he, he left? It might, I, no, I don't think it was a clinching factor, but I suspect it was a subconscious one. I think Loud is the sort of person that literally just thought, I've had enough of this because because uh, in his um, I can't remember if it's in his autobiography or in Alan Henry's Brabham book where he basically where Lauda basically says that I've got this fantastic new Gordon Murray car because they just brought out the BT forty nine which obviously went on to be one of the great Brabhams if we were doing a top ten Brabham F one cars that'd probably be you know in the top three wouldn't it and he just thought I just don't really care anymore um, and so in typical typical Lauda fashion got and apparently Bernie didn't even argue with him did he he just went yeah okay fine. <laughs> Well, he's he's right, isn't he? I think once a driver decides to go, he should go, Mister Vettel. You can see that um, time and again. I think I think hanging on is always the worst thing you can do. So he was right to to tell Louder to get out. Yeah. And Louder went off to start his airline, didn't he? Yeah. Went yeah. flew to straight to California to to, <laughs> yeah. to order his first plane. I mean, there were some great there were some great Brabham moments for Louder. I mean, I guess everyone remembers Swedish Grand Prix in the fan car. But actually, I think his best drive was his second place finish at Monaco when he came charging through the field, and I think he did a lap that was. I think it was one, yeah, it was nearly two seconds, 1.9 seconds quicker than anyone else after he'd had a puncture. And he came charging through the field to second in a, I think uh, Nigel Roebuck described it as sort of the, you know, the best driver out around the principality since, since Rince effort in 1970 with the old Lotus 49. So, um, so there were some highlights, but um, I don't think it was the most convincing part of Lauda's career. And in the end, he didn't kind of get the job done in the way that the people before and after him did. Yeah. I think they, Brabham didn't get the best of Nicky and, and, um, I don't think really he got the best of of, of Gordon Murray either, given the the, the failure of the, the the cooling car, the forty six, um, and then uh, obviously the, the fan car would have been great if it stuck around for more than one race, uh, which must have been very frustrating for everyone involved when uh, when that car, you know, clearly it was a Lotus Beater and it it, uh, it was then withdrawn. It's still a very divisive car. That I think Gordon still adamant that it should have been allowed and uh, as, we, as we said on the Arrows uh, podcast Tony Southgate who finished second in that race with Ricardo Pedrezzi we yeah. can't not mention him um, was really irritating thinks so that he was the first legitimate car F1 car yes. so that, that will rage forever more I, I interviewed Watty about that car last year and he was very entertaining he's still quite angry at Mario Andretti 
because Andretti was pushing out this theory that um, the fan was throwing stones at the drivers behind and was a danger. And what he convinced that's just absolute nonsense. And it was just a, a ruse to get it banned. That's um, quite smart from Mario, though, right? I yeah, mean, absolutely. Yeah, we're very Mario Andretti, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? You know, um, and also, you know, the, the other interesting thing about that that car was Tyrrell was furious because he'd had a fan car himself, which they couldn't get to work. So the you know the seventy eight Tyrrell was um, designed originally as a fan car, and uh, they, it was just uh, the temperature was too high; and they couldn't get it to work. So it was it was then turned back into a, a standard Tyrrell, um, which Depay won the Monaco Grand Prix that year, but wasn't a particularly competitive car. Uh, and as what he said, Ken did one of his froth, froth jobs at uh, Anderstorp and was absolutely in a, in a rage. I think it was probably the right decision not to have it because you can imagine that technology developed. I mean, look look how ridiculous ground effect cars got it yeah. anyway. Yeah. How stiff and awful and short braking distances, high high speed corners. It would have just been that, but... Yeah, multiplied by you know they, they would talk, they'd have had G suits and all this kind of nonsense, and the drivers would have probably become less and less of a factor. So I think it it, is, it exists much better as one of those kind of cool one-off moments rather than a path that F one should yeah. have gone down. Real sliding doors moment, actually. I think yeah, if it, yeah. Had, if it hadn't been banned, yeah, we'd have gone a completely different direction through that uh, that era. Indeed, and, and almost uh, interesting, not quite parallel, but interesting how history repeats so much. You think about. F1 2022 and the suggestion from some quarters that the suggestion the porpoising was so bad it was hurting the drivers was being hammed up in an effort to get the various bits banned and get things get things looked at. So yeah. not suggestion that any of that is necessarily happening or what's going on. Gamesmanship. So, Who would it's always been a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, every story has uh, happened before. It's just different flavours and versions, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Well, let's move on to number five on our top ten Brabham drivers list. At number five, it's Carlos Reutemann. Drove for Brabham between 1972 and 1976, starting 66 races, winning four times and taking two pole positions. Kev, why is Royceman at number five? He's not in the list because he handed Brabham the 1981 driver's title by being absolutely hopeless. But this is probably his biggest contribution to Brabham. It probably... Um, so he's the first. He's the first sort of number one driver during the Exton era. So um, obviously, Brab- Jack Bram retired and very quickly went. No, Ron Tornak, you have it. I'm not bothered. And then Tornak didn't really feel the same way about it without Jack. So you know, Bernie came in '72, and Reutemann was kind of the lead driver. And yeah, he, he took pole on his world championship debut, um, and he he, uh, he led the team through the DFV era, if you like, uh, until as I say, as I said earlier, he lost interest with the Alpha. Um, but you know he won three races in in seventy four with the BT forty four. They weren't really reliable enough for him to be a championship contender, but he should have been on raw pace, I think. And then seventy five was kind of the other way around. He had just the one win, but actually more consistent finishes. So he was actually higher up the table. Uh, and I know that Murray always felt that if he'd been able to just focus on developing the the forty four B, that Reutemann might have had a chance of winning of winning the world championship, or at least winning the the best of the rest behind. So at that point, an Alden Ferrari were actually getting into a a proper stride. Um, so here, that was the kind of the world championship winning car that got away, I think, from Murray's point of view. Um, but I'm sure Reutemann would have found a way to mess it up anyway, because yeah. he was some good on some days and not on others. But so he's a, he was the lead driver during quite a key moment, the start of the Murray Eccleston era, and did win some cool races. I think I think he's yeah he's got the four wins and the two poles, which puts him up into the top five anyway. Um, but I couldn't really I couldn't really force him any higher. I didn't think. I love Reutemann. I mean, we've had this conversation before. I've always thought you had a an archetype of what a, a Grand Prix driver should look 
and act like it's Carlos Reutemann for me, just, you know, mean, moody and, uh, you know, very good looking. Uh, and as you say, blue, hot and cold. I think he he kind of dro- drove Gordon Murray to distraction, but G- Gordon also loved him to bits as well. Um, a great character, apparently, uh, in the team. And um, he should have been better than he was, really. And I, I don't know, I think for the 70s, I always think of Carlos Reutemann as Bram's kind of muse, uh, and then the eighties, Nick uh, PK is you know. So it, for me, he's he's definitely he's definitely top five. So I wouldn't argue with you on that one. Yeah, I think, uh, and I think his sublime days were sublime. Like he yeah. was as good as anyone on his day. But I, I, as, a, as a regular and Alex, regular listeners and, and Alex will know, I, I kind of get infuriated by drivers that don't deliver their potential regularly enough. Uh, and he's almost the definition of that sort of drive you know any you know we talked about people like fernando alonso before the cars fall into pieces and he's driving it around he finds a way to get a lap time out of it whereas you know i think you know i think you've spoken to patrick head about this uh, uh demo that if there was something slightly off and it wasn't perfect then Royston would sort of his head would drop and he would then exaggerate the problem rather than find a way of getting around it so that's why he's uh, my enthusiasm for him is still slightly limited but from a romantic point of view yeah. which is kind of maybe what the 70s F1 stuff should be about or is I, about. I tend to look at it that from that perspective whereas um, you, you're more analytical and probably rightly so in your position but well, uh, my um, team would probably win more races but you'd have more fans yeah exactly <laughs> I'm also, I'm also thinking that chief editor is a less romantic position than editor in chief. Oh, I don't know. Ed- editor in chief was a pretty cold, pretty cold position to be in. It was, it was very yeah. Look, you're opening lofty, scars. It's lofty, Stop asking it's lofty. About Sorry, it. sorry. And actually, for what it's worth, I was, I was thinking as you were uh, saying how Reutemann is what you think a Grand Prix driver should look like. Obviously, it's different eras. It's very different styles. But I personally think I want all my Grand Prix drivers not to look identical, but. Lewis Hamilton, genuinely, mm. just the, the the tattoos, the high fashion, being mm. able to go on an American chat show and yeah. everyone know who you are because you're that much of a superstar. Yeah, that's what I think. Rather than a robot dressed in team kit, do you see what I mean? Well, like, absolutely. I've always thought that the the correlation between Lewis Hamilton today and late sixties, early seventies era Jackie Stewart, you know, with the big sideburns and Emerson Fittipaldi with the big shades, you know, there's an absolute correlation between, between these guys. Cause you know, um, you know, Grand Prix drivers used to be Jim Clark or Brill Cream and neat haircuts. And suddenly they look like rock stars, you know, they look like the Beatles. Uh, and today, you know, Lewis looks like a, a rap star. There's an absolute correlation. So, um, but for me, the seventies, you know, Carlos Reutemann is, it's kind of where it's at. I mean, uh, the picture of him airborne at the Nurburgring and the Martini Brabham done. Yeah. I mean, that is that is a cool. I mean, it's cool. Yeah, it? I mean, for me, the the, the forty four BT forty four, uh, and you know, either in plain white livery with the black pinstripes, and then with the Martini livery, you you can't beat that. I always thought if they put the if it only it had the red Martini livery on it at some point. That might have been the greatest, or oh, completely off-piste here, yeah. could be the greatest-looking F1 car of all time. With that shape, with the red and the, the double blue, it looks absolutely awesome. Again, this this moment does come out quite regularly on this top ten list. It's which top ten list are you going to write next? The top ten best-looking. Uh, I've already cars. done the top ten best-looking F1 cars. Visit allsport.com to find. As you just put it into Google search, you'd probably find it find it quicker. <laughs> oh, we, have to, we have to do a podcast on it. Clearly, um, let's uh, let's get on to uh, the next driver in our Brabham list. And again, it's uh, we're going to do number four and number three together. Now, everyone, including listeners, please bear with me when I try and utter this sentence that I've written down on my list for number four. It's Denny Holm. Now, he's not the first world champion on this particular list. That was Rint. 
he is the first Brabham world champion on this list, but not Brabham's first world champion because he won in 1967 the world title and Jack Brabham won in 1966. Well done. Was, you've achieved that. Thank you. And actually, that, that, take that was what, the first edit as well. It was the first take. Usually, though, it takes me quite a few to get through these things. But anyway, Holm drove for Brabham between 1965 and 1967, started 26 races, taking two victories, but no pole positions. And then at number three, we're going to talk three and four together. Dan Gurney drove for Brabham between 1963 and 1965, starting 30 races, winning twice and taking two pole positions. So, Kev, why are Holm and Gurney your four and three? So the natural thing would be to have Holm ahead of Gurney because Holm won a world championship in a Brabham, right? But for me, Holm's a, Holm's a Brabham number two. He took his opportunity when it came along and it was, I think you could run the 1967 100 times and Holm wins it once because half the time... I mean, Jack Brabham would win it again and the other half Jim Clark loads 49 and hold together long enough to win because the 49 was the quicker car but fair play to Holm he took the championship but he never had a he didn't have a single pole he had he had two wins all this time there I think most of the time he was a number two to Brabham whereas Gurney uh, you know Jack Gurney was the first Brabham driver that Jack immediately went well he's kind of the team leader I can take a step back he was actually thinking of retiring during 1965 and the idea was that Gurney would be driving the Brabham Retco in 66. And I'm pretty confident to say he would have won that championship pretty comfortably, I think, because he was quicker than Jack. And Jack did win it in that car. So uh, Gurney's a number one that, that left at the wrong time. He was uh, he, he kind of left left Brabham just as it was a championship opportunity was coming along. Um, and Holm was sort of there in the right place at the right time. Uh, and also Gurney, I think, has to take some, you know, if we're looking at impact, he took the first win. He was the, you know, he, he took the, I think he's unique in taking the first win for three different constructors in Formula One, uh, Porsche, Brabham, and his own Eagle operation, which is pretty good because he only won four races, which mm. I think does him a massive disservice. Um, so, yeah, so I had to put Gurney ahead of three. I'm a bit of a fan, I'll be honest. I, I wouldn't disagree with you, um, but it's, I think Holmes' achievement is sometimes overlooked a little bit in terms of what he managed, considering that he served a long apprenticeship in the wings in terms of Formula One um, because Gurney was there and Jack was there. Um, he got his chance and how, my, how he took it. You know, I mean, there was a lot of luck involved in, in the fact that he lasted, whereas obviously the um, uh, Clark and Brabham had troubled races that year and he, he won it by default maybe. But the fact is he still won it and really came from nowhere to be, to be world champion. I mean, if you'd said to someone two years before, Denny Holm will be world champion in 67. You know, no one would have taken you seriously. I think it's a significant achievement um, that, um, he, yeah, he deserves more credit, I think. Now, that's, prob that's probably fair, but I would say that if you were doing a list of the best Grand Prix drivers, <laughs> well, surprisingly, I have also started that, uh, best Grand Prix drivers never to win the world championship, aside from the obvious number one. Um, I think Gurney's really high. Gurney's in my five, and I think that those five—I think they're in a clear five in that that group that overlap the bottom end of uh, of the F1 champions, right? So the, the top, is it thirty-four drivers have won a world? You should know this. Max Verstappen—he was the thirty-fourth, I think. I think thirty-four <laughs> drivers have won the world championship, um, and I would say that that doesn't represent the best thirty-four drivers in F1 history. No. And for me, Holm and Gurney are in that overlap. I agree with you, by the way, that you know, Gurney should be ahead because I'm I'm also a big admirer of Gurney as well. Um, but Holmes an interesting one in the sense that he came through that um, that 60s era. Uh, he then came through 
uh, slick tires, aerodynamics, and you know was still racing well, you know, well into the um, you know the mid seventies. By you know seventy four, he was still a McLaren. Um, so I've got, he's got an interesting career, and he lasted a long time at the top while not being one of the premier drivers. Yeah, you know I think I mean? that's you know entirely what? fair. Although so, I must admit, when I think, this maybe says more about me than Holm, but if I think Danny Holm, I immediately think Sid Taylor, Lola T70, white with a green stripe down it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, I'm not sure I can hem that. I'm not sure I can crave that, well, that into a list anyway. Well, just to confirm for the listeners, Max Verstappen was indeed the 34th yes. F1 World Champion, which of course I knew, you didn't have to look up. I still want to interrupt your, your lovely flow. <laughs> yeah. I think I got away well, with I that. I remember being at a, a Coy's festival in the early 90s, uh, and suddenly realising in the pit next door was Denny Hull, and he was he was basically sort of guest driving in a in a BMW uh, tin top for that weekend. It was just really cool to see him. And it was only a matter of about a year later. I was I was on my way to university, my first day with my dad, and uh, I got motoring news because um, it was a Wednesday. So I couldn't get autosport, and uh, the oh, news was that that, uh, that Denny had died. Um, so I've always had a bit of a soft spot for him, I think. But I mean, Gurney—he um, kind of ran out of patience with Brabham, didn't he? In terms of uh, lots of engine problems, yeah, real problems with the climax. But the interesting thing about time. it is, you know, Brabham was formed primarily as a pro- production car manufacturer in Formula Junior, Formula Three, Formula Two. That's what Ron Torak was interested in—was producing lots of cars to basically be a uh, a reliable Lotus. When they were, people trusted Brabham. And yet in Formula One, in those early days, they were deeply unreliable. They should have won a lot more than they did, which is why Gurney left. It's quite an interesting one, the, the paradox between the, the, the production car side of things and the Formula One team. Yeah, yeah. Although, as I say, I think a lot, they had a lot of problems with, the, with Climax, didn't they, during the 1500cc? Which I wonder if that actually then contributed to Jack's thinking about the Repco's, that I need a reliable... Because I think he must have known that everyone was going to be in a shambles for the three-litre. Yeah. So, so he just got himself a sensible, very pragmatic approach to it all, really. Yeah, Jack never won a World Championship Grand Prix in the one-and-a-half-litre era. Yeah, that's great. Which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we're already at our final two, which is another another pairing we're going to introduce together. Uh, the first is Nelson Piquet, who, of course, has been in the headlines for all the wrong reasons of late, which, to be clear, that all came to light after Kev had set these positions. And in any case, Piquet does remain rather a central figure to the Brabham story, regardless of how unpleasant that and other episodes involving him were. Uh, but Nelson Piquet is number two. And at number one, Jack Brabham founded his uh, eponymous team, took its first world title, 1966, as I said earlier. And of course, he remains the only person to win a world title in a car bearing their own name. Uh, just to run through the stats of these two, uh, PK drove for Brabham between 1978 and 1985, started 106 races, won 13 times, took 18 poles. Whereas Jack Brabham drove for his squad between 1962 and 1970, started 80 races, won seven times, took eight poles. Now, Kev, that's your one and two. Is it as, Was it as easy as putting Brabham as number one, bearing in mind what he created and what he achieved? No, because this is actually one of the closest number ones. So we've said before that actually um, the number one quite often picks themselves. It's surprising how often there's been a clear number one uh, on these lists. But this one I did hum and har about quite a bit because on every sort of objective metric, PK is ahead. So he started more races, he took more wins, he took more poles. Like he holds the Brabham record for all those those stats he's the only Brabham driver to have won two world titles there and I think if you were going purely on on track performance you would say that 
that PK would be ahead. You'd probably put PK ahead of, of Brabham on pure Jack Brabham on pure driving. Um, but ultimately, I just couldn't see it. Like we try and factor in impact, and it's always a balance of well, how much impact do you need to overcome the on-track stuff? Well, I'd say being the founder of the of the team and <laughs> winning the world championship in your own car. I mean, it doesn't get much more impactful than that. And and that's the difference between him and Bruce McLaren in that, in that Bruce didn't really get the job done in his own car. And actually McLaren didn't go on to be super successful until after his, after his death at Goodwood. Whereas Brabham was a, Jack Brabham was a driving force, did win the world championship, you know, won the driver's title, won the constructor's title. They won it again the next year. Obviously, Denny Holm was driver's champion. Uh, and that was all driven by Jack. A lot of it was driven by Jack. And he showed that he, showed that he still had it in his last season, you know, the, the BT33 in 1970. He was pretty unlucky not to win more races that year against the, you know, the, the wonder car, Lotus 72, that would go on for another five years. So uh, both of them are two, two of the greats of the sport. And, you know, PK was the guy during the Gordon Murray, Bernie Eccleston era. So it, would have, it could have put him number one, but I just couldn't see past the founder of the, the company. But I don't know if... If Damien will agree or not, I'm really torn. I'm really yeah. torn on this one. I'm like you, and I probably would, probably would nudge towards Jack because of that achievement in '66 of, you know, finding a left field power source the way that he did, uh, which came out of nowhere and undercut everyone. You know, um, I always think you know the international trophy that year. Surtees realised uh, we're in trouble when he got. You know, Jack came out and beat him. Uh, in the non-championship race, and um, uh, to do it at forty as well, I think was pretty special. I mean, you know, people called him the old man, and he famously donned a beard and a walking stick on the on the grid at uh, Zandvoort. Zandvoort sixty-six. Yeah, which um, then went and won. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, on that amazing summer that he had, um, it won an achievement. You know, and um, it's also interesting how much you know, he loved driving. You know, and that's what it's interesting that as soon as he stopped driving, he walked away from Formula One. He didn't stick around to be a team a team boss, which um, you know he could have done. You know, um, uh, he was he was all about the driving, really, Jack, wasn't he? And and he loved being in Formula One, and it was he was kind of torn to leave. Well, he was reluctant know. to go, even when he did. Didn't he, he? He didn't <laughs> want to go. No, he he, you know, he could have raced on. Yeah, actually, um, a little bit like you know Alonso today is what forty one this year. So um, you know Jack raced on till forty four, and that was in nineteen seventy. So um, okay, you know aerodynamic forces and stuff are much bigger these days. You could say the sport is a lot more competitive. It actually is a lot more competitive today than it was then. But that was still quite remarkable then. Um, so yeah, I think. You're probably right, Kev, but I'm, I've got a soft spot for PK as well. Just, just you know, putting aside everything that's happened recently, we forget about that. In terms of the period we're talking about, PK was was a little bit special as well. Yeah, and I think PK was probably closer to the best driver of his era than than Jack was. I think yeah, also I think that's that, true. That Jack had moments where he was happy. You could say this is a strength as a team manager, but he had moments where he was, yeah, you know, with first of all with Gurney, then with Rint, and then with. Uh, then with Ix, where he was kind of happy to step back and go, okay, you're the young, you're the young hard charger, you're quicker than me, get you go off, and I'll focus on. If you read his autobiography, actually, he's he talks about the racing and the driving the least of almost any drive. It's all about mm. the behind the scenes stuff and the, the getting it together. And the, you know, he had a feeling going to '66 that he had something, and and Dan went, so he went, well, I'm going to drive it then because I reckon I've got. And he he, I think he's one of those drivers that 
drove better when the car was better. I don't think he was going to be a heroic hauling an uncompetitive car around. Yeah. Um, and and in, and to to sort of on PK's another you know strength of PK. Let's remember how important integral he was to the BMW turbo program because because Bradman and BMW nearly fell out a couple of occasions because the car kept you know blowing up and and mm. Pico was the one that you know kept it together went and did a lot of the testing did a lot of the hard graft behind the scenes basically effectively sacrificed the 82 world title which he probably could have won in a DFV BT49 given that Rosberg did in the in the Williams yeah that's true to go into the okay so they needed they needed a little bit of uh, mm. <laughs> I needed a little bit of Renault messing up in 83 to get the opportunity well he shouldn't have won in 83 should he, he? he, he shouldn't, shouldn't have won the title he, sh- he, shouldn't, he shouldn't really, um, but no. but it was kind of, you know, it was kind of payback for all his hard work. Um, well, he's the archetype for me of the, the driver who puts in the hard work to race easier. You know, if, yeah. by, he he was a, a, despite the the public perception of what PK is, he was a real grafter, and everyone who worked with him had a lot of time for him from that perspective. I think he got through a lot of engineers during his. his I mean, certainly, I was talking to Pat Simmons about his time at Benetton. You know, and he was, you know, Pat Simmons clearly doesn't have a great lot of time for for Nelson Piquet, given what happened many years later with his son. Um, but um, he was surprised by Piquet's work ethic at Benetton and how much he put in uh, to that team. And certainly he was younger. He certainly did a Brabham as well. Yeah, I mean, you don't win three world championships by... Uh, by you're not a lucky three-time world no, champion. No, I mean, I think that he, he probably had more of the slice of luck for those three than some other three-time world champions, particularly 87, which we, which is not part of this remit because obviously he went off to, to mm. Williams by then. And of course he did, if you remember, even after Brabham sort of fell away and they went on to Pirelli tyres and they got overtaken in terms of race day pace by McLaren tag, you know, Porsche engines. Um, yeah, he was still a qualifying, like with the whip turned up in the turbo era, Pico was still something else. Mm. He, did, was he timed at 176 miles an hour at the end of the straight at Brands Hatch? Anyone that's been to Brands Hatch, anything doing 176 miles an hour at the end of the, the start finish straight, I say yeah. straight in inverted commas. Um, yeah, is, I mean, that's, and that's pretty awesome. There's the ridiculous testing lap at, uh, at Goodwood as well, isn't there? That, um yeah, the alleged. Oh, what was it? Was it an alleged sixty-one or something? Something like that. Well, it may have been even sub sub Might minute. Be, yeah, yeah. They, they never because there's never been sort of official confirmation. But the average yeah. speed around there must have been. Actually, that's something that um, he shares with Holm because didn't Holm give Simon Taylor a passenger ride in the Canaan McLaren and and went round uh, went round Goodwood quicker than the then lap record in the Canaan McLaren? Yeah. Um, yeah, that must have been quite a passenger ride, crikey. Yeah, I think you know PK, the racing driver for me is 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 special um, uh, and great great helmet design as well, which go, which counts for a lot in my book. <laughs> but he's number two. Because but he's he number two. The team. <laughs> I, th- I think I think you're probably right, Kev, to put put Jack at number one, given the achievements he managed, particularly that late in his career, and he had a massive testing shunt at Silverstone mm. in '69, and his account of that is really incredible how he was trapped in the car um with a broken leg i think it is and he you know and the team finally came round to him to free him and ron dennis was actually marshalling the the, the the mechanics to free the boss from the car and that left x to sort of lead the team through the summer but jack came back from that yeah and actually mm-hmm. that's during that's during a time when they literally did go testing with no marshals or whatever yeah so if you did go off 
you basically had to rely on your team going, oh, I can't hear the engine anymore. No, exactly. Jump in the car and go around and see if he's all right. That's, that's exactly it. <laughs> it's yeah. just yeah. absolutely crazy. And then to come back the way he did in 70, if he hadn't binned it at Gasworks at Monaco in front of Rint, if he hadn't run out of fuel at Brands, that would have changed the whole dynamic of that season. Yeah, well, also they had a they had a fuel system problem they didn't spot for two or three races. Um, again, he talks about this in his auto, auto I think it's when the when the flag falls or when the flag drops, I think. It's a really interesting book. Mm. And yeah, he's kind of kicks himself that they didn't get hold of this fuel issue, which made him uncompetitive for three or four races. Because then at the end of the year, he's actually running third at the season finale, yeah. which is the first of the DFE runners after the Ferraris, which were kind of coming on strong then, um, when his engine failed. So he's running third at the age of 44 in his last... Yeah. Last Grand Prix, it's pretty cool. And one of my proudest things at Autosport during my time at Autosport was uh, getting Jack over for the uh, the awards one year. And he was given, a, I think, a Gregor Grant Award. And I was involved in basically convincing Jack and Margaret, his wife, to come over from Australia um, and was sort of on the phone to Margaret quite regularly for through November, sort of making sure the flights were organised and, the, you know, they were happy with the hotel arrangements. And when he came off stage, he came over and shook my hand which was just, you know, I, I was a bit starstruck and uh, didn't really have much to say to him, but it was um, it was lovely to meet him and to uh, to welcome him to the awards that year. It was very special. A very nice note on which to end our podcast. So, Kev, thank you very much. Damo, thank you. And obviously, thanks to everybody listening along. Uh, do let us know what you thought. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. For this episode, send us an email, hit us up on social media, uh, but we'll be, back, we'll be back soon with a new episode of the Autosport Podcast. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The, is it morning yet, deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.